0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and I have a Dr. Janine Davis with me today. And uh, Janine's research intersects social, so- social psychology and technology studies with a particular focus on identifying and reducing inequality as it materializes it in technological systems. Um, She is currently in the School of Sociology at the Australian National University in Australia. And today I have her on the show to discuss how artifacts afford the power and politics of everyday things. It was published in Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press in 2020. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the first question that I would like to uh, present is: How did you, um, how did you get into the topic of uh, affordances, and particularly looking at uh, artifacts that afford?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Well, so I've one significant line of research that I've done and been doing for a long time is on social media platforms, and my one of my main interests in that area is how the design of these platform interfaces shape the ways that people can use them and the ways that they present themselves and the ways that they interact. And so within that literature, this concept of affordances came up quite a lot. Uh, and it's this idea that that the design of a technology enables and constrains in different ways. Um, in coming across this term, I also came across some critiques of it and had some really interesting discussions with my students about it when teaching, when teaching the concept. Um, and I came to kind of think of it, one, as a really, important, um, a really important guiding force in social media studies, but also technology studies more generally. Um, and then through especially discussions with my students, I sort of came to think what we really need is an operational framework of this concept. And so I started reading a lot more about it, uh, wrote an article about it, and then eventually that turned into the book.
1: So, so, yes, that leads me to the, the next question. You, you mentioned affordances, and it was a, a concept that you came across. I, I'm not that familiar with it. And maybe some of our audience members aren't either. So what are affordances?
0: Yeah, so in the most basic sense, affordances are just how the design of an, of an object, its buttons, its weavers, its shapes, its contours, how they enable and constrain. What you can do with that object. And then in turn, how that object affects us. So I like to think of what can we do with this object and what can't we do? And then in turn, what does that object do to us as individuals and as a society? So for example, when you were to, if you were to think about um, this podcast right now, the, um, the video interface allows us to see each other's facial expressions, while the recording button allows us to track what we talk about here and share it with broad audiences. Later, Um, Each of the sort of features of this technology with which we're interacting right now shapes how we use it, how we engage one another, um, and what is possible and plausible, and in turn, what sorts of things are constrained or foreclosed.
1: Well, uh, it sounds like the everyday, interac- the everyday actions and interactions that we have with technology, it almost seems impossible for us to not come upon some uh, affordance in our everyday life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's really integral to kind of, you know, it's, it's this academic term, but actually when once you sort of think about what affordances are, how the design of a technology enables and constrains, it's really relatable to anybody interacting with kind of any technological object as we do each and every day throughout, you know, the mundanity of daily life.
1: And I, I, I see in the book that you um, particularly focus on two major contributors to this concept of affordance, and they are Gibson and Norman. I guess, can we start off with Gibson first and what their contribution was to this concept?
0: Yeah, so J.J. Gibson was an ecological psychologist and he was writing in the 1960s. Um, And one of the things that he was interested in was how people and their environment interact with each other. So how people experience their environment and how the environment impacts upon them. And so he was in particular interested in this study, this really influential study of the relationship between um, uh, military pilots and their aircraft and understanding how those military pilots were shaped and constituted through their relationship to these um, to these flying machines, uh, essentially. And, um, and so here's the inter- where he introduced first the concept of affordance. So the, the term affordance didn't exist before Gibson. But in his study of pilots and their planes, he said, here are the affordances, essentially what do these airplanes enable and constrain in relation to these military pilots.
1: Uh, and then Norman and... Uh, the contribution made by by them?
0: Yep. So Don Norman um, is from Design Studies. So about 20 or so years after Gibson was writing, Don Norman picked up this idea of affordance and brought it to the field of design, and in particular, human-computer interaction. And so what Norman said is, um, the designer is a communicator. And what the designer's job is, the designer's job is to be... um, uh, is to communicate effectively to users how a product ought to be used. And, and what he did was say that's inbuilt through that product's affordances. So the example, the kind of quintessential example that Norman uses is the placement of a, um, a door handle indicating to someone whether that door ought to be pushed or pulled. And the same kind of logic he applied to hardware and software systems. And and these ideas were actually picked up, not just intellectually, but also like it became really big in a lot of the big tech firms and how they design their products.
1: What's interesting about that is affordances. I oftentimes think of, uh, you know, a death of an author or, you know, something to uh, something quite similar to that. And thinking about how affordances, while a designer, at, when building, when developing, when engineering a product, has an affordance in mind, but um, across time, it becomes fluid. Like for example, the uh, ADA compliance requires that there be uh, some sort of automatic door pushing at new buildings uh, to afford access to people with disabilities. However, every once in a while my hands might be full and I all of a sudden use my foot and I click the button and open it up and it's uh, you know afford it. it has provided affordances beyond its original intent.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a great point. So there's intended affordances, right? But then there's also all of these latent effects. And so there's been all there's been a lot of moves within design studies for inclusive inclusive design, such that the design is geared towards those who may not for those people with you know particular needs, which all of us have particular needs in different circumstances. But so it's um, design geared towards away from the default and more to an inclusive kind of everybody can do it and one of the interesting things about that is often those who weren't in mind when something was designed still benefit from it just as um, just as the design can inadvertently also uh, constrain some people even if that wasn't sort of the initial intent. <laughs>
1: So interesting. And what um, also I find so fascinating is how cross-pollinated this concept of affordance has become beyond uh, beyond just uh, the original form of uh, psychology and environmental psychology, be- even into design and now into sociology um, with this book. Are there any other areas of study that you found affordance to appear in?
0: Yes, everywhere. So I think one of, the, one of the motivators for writing the book and one of the things that really solidified as I was writing the book is just how broad, diverse, and widespread this concept has, has been. So it's gone through engineering. It's really big in educational technology. Um, it's been deployed in anthropology as a way of thinking about um, human technology relations across time, place, and culture. Um, It's in psychology, it's in robotics, and it really sort of has deployed quite what in communication studies. And so again, that was sort of part of the motivation for writing the book was like, okay, this concept is really spread and has a ton of traction. Um, How do we, how do we make sure it's being used? How do we check how the different, on the different ways it's being used? And how do we sort of shore it up so that it's used most effectively? Because clearly it's, uh, carry in a lot of intellectual and practical ways.
1: So as it has become so big, have there been any major critiques uh, of affordance in any specific uh, discipline uh, or maybe in, in sociology that you've experienced as a result of of studying this concept that seems to be... Uh, while it may have a stable definition, it's appearing in a variety of disciplines. And I know sometimes we get, um, well, scholars get territorial and get a little skeptical of of concepts that can go all over the place.
0: Yeah. Well, so I think, you know, just as as with anything that rises to prominence, it also becomes subject to scrutiny, right? And, and such is the case with affordances. Um, and I think the scrutiny that it's based, though, has been pretty well-founded, So there are sort of two main critiques that have been leveled against affordances that I try to address and correct for in the book. But so the two critiques leveled against affordances are are a binary application, and I'll talk about that in a second, and a presumed universal subject. So by binary application, it means people talk about affordances as though they're either present or absent, impossible or inevitable, right? So either something affords or it does not. When in fact, we, we, you know, anyone who's used kind of any technology can say, well, you know, I, I can kind of do, you know, I can kind of use it for this function or I can do that, but it's really difficult. Or, oh, I feel like I have to use it in this way. So what we treat often as binary, either it affords or it doesn't, is in fact materializes in real life through kind of these nuanced gradations, right? There's more and less intensity with which it pushes and pulls. And the way that the concept is applied doesn't account for that. And the way it's been theorized doesn't quite account for that. Um, the second critique is a presumed universal subject. So while we're saying these are the affordances of a technology, we're acting as though um, that technology has the same affordances for all people in all places at all times. And so this is to your point about um, This is to your point about, you know, ABA standards and and how doors are supposed to work, right? So prior to it being a requirement that doors push open, uh, it may be that a door afforded opening for one person, but not for another, right? It foreclosed that opportunity for another. Um, You know, I think a great way of thinking about this, uh, somebody once said, you know, uh, a computer system is fundamentally different to a programmer than it is to a lay user. Right. And so the affordances of that system are really different. And so these are the two. So there are these two kind of big problems. We're using this concept to understand how the material artifact, how the design of the technology shapes user behavior. But we're acting as though there are only two options, either it makes you do something or forces you not to. And we're treating the technology as though it interacts the same way with all people at all times, which we know not to be the case. Um so yeah, so those are kind of a couple of critiques that have, have lingered and persisted.
1: So when you talk about uh, history of the the door, um that that leads me to wondering whether there is an importance in material history when considering affordances. Um yeah, could you talk about the importance of material history?
0: Yeah, well so um so a a major premise of affordances as a concept and as a theory is that the materiality of artifacts matters. How things are built matters. The built environment, the physicality of it matters. And that dates back, you know, 50 or so years to these kind of old debates about constructivism versus materialism. So constructivism would say the technology itself doesn't matter, it's only how we use it. And the materialist would say, would say, the design of the technology not only matters, but fundamentally so and primarily so, right? If we're only thinking about use, then we're really missing the point. And so this is like Marshall McLuhan, for instance, had sort of the famous line that the medium is the message, right? Um, uh, Over the years, there have been various debates about whether we should be focusing more on human actors or more on technological objects. And so does constructivism win or does um, materiality win in that debate? And what we've sort of come to, and I think where affordances sit, is this balance between them. Yes, materiality absolutely matters. How things are designed absolutely matters. And also, it only matters with and through a relationship to human subjects who have made the technology, who make the culture from which that technology comes, and who use the technology in sometimes creative and unexpected ways.
1: So a movement away from binary on on to two uh, on two fronts, both on affordances and who affords and who doesn't. It affords to some some things and affords to others other things, and then on this other front of material history, it's not just material materiality or just social constructivism, but um, both social constructivism and uh, materiality. Seeing the fluidity then of uh, of the original material form that was afforded to this object is is that right?
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly. It's really well thought. that's exactly it. And there's you know several names of theories. The one that I kind of tack on to is technology's materialized actions. and that's from a guy named Ernst child, but it's this idea that right te- that both materiality and sociality both mutually matter. And that we have to understand the innovation.
1: And, and then another name uh, that was brought up that you brought up in this book is William H. Warren. What contributions did he make to the uh, to the concept of affordance?
0: Yeah. So interestingly, so just, so I just said there are these critiques about this critique of binary application, where people say things either afford or not. But actually, like you know, thirty years ago, William Warren did sort of already was trying to correct for this, and said, you know, affordances only matter in relation to a particular subject. And so what Warren did was these famous um, uh, stairs studies. And what he measured was, so he says, okay, so there, stairs have affordances, like, you know, to, you go upstairs, they have affordances, but those affordances can only be made sense of in relation to the leg height of people who are walking up those stairs. Right, and so he did this whole empirical study about the ratio between leg height and, and riser, leg length and riser height, um, to as a way of illustrating how technological objects always only make sense in relation to the human subjects with whom they're engaging. And so, for instance, if you had a really really short legs, stairs might be unclimbable for you, or if you had really really long legs, a set of stairs might either be easily climbable or unclimbable, right? So it's always this relationship. Um, and though we, I think the field is really influenced by that set of studies and refers to them often when talking about the nature of affordances, often when affordances are applied, it, it goes back to that sort of binaries and then universal subject. So though Warren empirically demonstrated this relationality and variability in affordances Um, in which stairs were either unclimbable, marginally climbable, or optimally climbable, depending on subjects. And we all who are writing and thinking about this sort of maybe know about those studies and and talk about them. Um, As people then go on to apply affordances to say, like, what are the affordances of the Facebook platform or Instagram or TikTok? It often reverts back still to that binaryism and universalism. So there's been this sort of tension and puzzle of, of empirical studies showing us the relationality of technologies in humans, and humans and yet applications in which we kind of um, let that fall by the wayside.
1: As a parent, I can't help but think about baby gates and stairs and, you know, it's not that babies can't climb them, it's just that they are uh, less affordable for, uh, less affordable? I think so, for babies and they would be for adults because babies will find a way to go up or down, as my grandma used to tell me when going down these very steep stairs at her house, "Set on your bottom and go bump, bump on the way down so that you don't fall. Uh, I, I remember telling me that story. I don't think I remember the original time she told me that, but uh, it's just, you know, it's not that they do afford or don't afford. As you just mentioned with Warren, it's the level of affordability.
0: Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Yeah, it's so the level of affordability for whom and under what circumstances. <laughs>
1: And now some, uh, now some language that is used with affordance technologies, um, there's words like uh, concepts like request, demand, encourage, discourage, encourage, refuse, and allow, which is what these technologies uh, uh, afford to the people who are using them. What do each of these categories mean? So let's start off with uh, the, the concept of request. What, what does request mean?
0: Yeah, well, so um, if so, I'll I'll explain a tiny bit of background on like how those things all fit together. Um, so so in correcting for the binary application of affordance, things either afford or not. Um, and simultaneously, in correcting for the universal subject what I've put forth in the book is called the mechanisms and conditions framework. So it takes a single concept and turns it into an operational model. And so those words that you just mentioned are the mechanisms part of that framework, the mechanisms of affordance. So rather than a binary depiction in which something either affords or doesn't, we ask, how does it afford? How does it request, and encourage, discourage, or refuse and allow? So it, allows, so it brings us these gradations. And so requests and demands are um, the way that I think about it is requests and demands are um, bids the artifact places upon you. What does it ask you to do or what does it seem like it's making you do? Encourage, discourage, and refuse. Then is how the object would respond to you. If you try to do something, are you encouraged in doing so? Are you discouraged from doing so? Or does it seem like it's impossible to do so? Right? And then allow would be neutral, something neutral in intensity. You can do it but they you're not sort of nudged one way or the other. And so what we do is they all operate together as a set of mechanisms that allow us to articulate those, the various intensities of those pushes, pulls, and responses of technological systems.
1: Oh, so they're not, they're not uh, independent of one another. They can, uh, you know, a piece of technology, an object, uh, could be afforded, uh, um, in almost all of those areas at any given time across people, since it isn't binarial, since it is, uh, uh, since it is fluid and, and varies from time to time and place to place and person to person.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, um, Right, so these, these uh, I think these this analytic clubs, right? These mechanisms of importance all hang together and become how we they're sort of a tool for articulating the ways that technologies push and pull with varying degrees of intensity across people and circumstances.
1: But uh, still, uh, I think it's a very good tool, uh, particularly for a sociologist who's looking for general patterns of behavior uh, across people. So it, it might help us identify groups of people who have more or less affordance to certain technologies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's a good way of saying, you know, what's requested of me may be demanded of you. You know, what's, here, what's, what's currently uh, allowed may be later refused right? And so we can sort of talk about how these technologies affect us, but also how they reflect us in relation to others.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of a, of a recent, uh meeting that I had with a student uh, at my university and one of the things that the admissions uh, admissions counselors said was they didn't realize uh, how little uh, affordance there was for, they didn't use the word affordance I'm using it here, but they didn't realize how restrictive the hills uh, uh, were at William Penn University they, they mm-hmm. were talking about how uh, a person in a wheelchair found it difficult to navigate the campus um, and, and they learned about this only because this was the first time that they um, that they had walked with somebody in a wheelchair and talking about, well, how can we figure out how to make our campus a bit more navigable for, for people who aren't uh, um, walking persons? And yeah, uh, that's yeah, that was interesting. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, it's so important. And I think it speaks to this broader point of the significance of the people in the proverbial room, right? So we all sort of pay lip service to um, you know, of course, we want more diverse. Of course, we want more diversity in our lives, in our universities, and in our, you know, design tables, for instance. Um, but there's a real reason that we want that diversity, and it's not just symbolic, and it's not just about fairness. It's because people of all sorts have perspectives that only they can see. But it's really hard to understand the experiences of of one another until you encounter that directly. And so, having that kind of diversity. Reveals those different affordances and constraints but, uh, in ways that then trigger action.
1: Yeah, and this leads us to uh, maybe a conversation about how affordances uh, are are conditioned by perceptions, dexterity, culture, and institutional okay. legitimacy, and, and how while well, while these aren't discrete areas in them themselves, well, how do these how, how do these concepts condition affordance?
0: Yeah. So, okay. So I said that, um, as a, so I said that there are these two binary application and universal subjects. And to correct for that, there's a framework, the mechanisms and conditions framework. Those mechanisms request, demand, encourage, discourage, refuse, and allow get us outside of the binary. The conditions get us outside of the universal subject. So the conditions of, so the conditions of affordance take us, say, for whom and under what circumstances do these affordances apply? And so I've broken them; these conditions into three sections, or into sort of three types: uh, perception. What do we know about the technology? Do you know that this function exists or not? Dexterity. How skilled are you in its operation, physically and also um, uh, tactily and um, knowledge-wise? And then cultural and institutional legitimacy. How socially supported are you? In a technology's operation. So, for example, if we were to talk about um, this Zoom recording, right? Um, if I didn't know that I could push a, re- if one of us didn't know they could push a recording button, then that, then that feature would be refused. Whereas once you do know, right? Then it's allowed or encouraged. And so, um, and so that's perception. Do I perceive this as a functionality? But then there's also skill and dexterity, right? So, um, for instance, I might say, "Well, I know you can record this, but I've like never done it before, and I don't really know how." Then it still might be refused to me or at least discouraged. Whereas you, who's well practiced in this particular platform, might know exactly what to do. So you know the you know the tool is there, and you know how to use it. So you can record. And so for you, again, that's encouraged. and then cultural and institutional legitimacy, how socially supported are you, right? So this is your podcast and, and it would be, and so you are the person who's sort of socially supported and hitting records, but I'm not, right? We, there's a, there's a normative relationship in which if I were the one who said, who pushed the record button, it would be sort of socially strange. And there are other circumstances in which those um, rules and boundaries are, are much stronger. But even if I know that I can record, even if I have the skill and knowledge to to enact that, to to hit the record button and make it happen, because this isn't my podcast, I'm not institutionally or culturally supported in doing so. And we can extrapolate that to sort of think about affordances across any range of technologies. You know what the thing can do, right? So I think about my use of a mobile phone versus my grandmother's use of a mobile phone. The affordances would be different for both of us. Uh, what do you know you can do? How skilled are you in doing it? and then how much um, how how valid are you or how socially supported are you um, in in those operations?
1: Interesting. Yes, I th- I was thinking of the the payphone or the uh, old wall phone and the and having to spin to dial, right? And uh, talking about that, um, while I may have used it or know how to use it, uh, you know, my students might question my legitimacy because because I'm on the younger age of that of that whole thing. Or talking about popular music, you know, some of the language I use in the classroom, uh, they'd question why why I'm trying to speak like them. Uh, yeah, but anyway, affordances, right? Of even language.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I think, affordances one thing that's been really kind of fun to watch is affordances can apply to sort of any any designed target, anything that's designed. And when you look at the field of the design, of course, that has to do with like hardware and software um, and architecture and built environments, but also there's like design of legislation, design of policy, design of norms and boundaries and social situations so as we expand what counts as design we too can expand how we think about and apply affordances yeah,
1: i love this concept and i, I hope to use it uh, in in my studies uh, of uh festivals and uh celebrations in a variety of different communities um Particularly, what the uh, event per- affords to certain people who are participating in that festival or celebration, but this leads me to another another area that you wrote about in your book. It seems that that affordances is a concept that that opens the door for a variety of different research methods to understand who was afforded, who was not afforded, how much people are afforded to certain objects. So, what are some empirical ways of of studying? the existence and transformation of affordances that technology and environment provide?
0: Um, Okay, so I think of affordances as, as, I think of the mechanisms and conditions framework as both a theory and a method. Um, It's a theory in that it takes this concept and kind of explodes it out to understand how, for whom, and under what circumstances technologies afford through these mechanisms and conditions. But it's also a method in that you can map the features of the technology to those mechanisms and conditions and people have done that and so you can kind of do that in its own right but it also pairs really well with existing methods of um of analysis and design that focus on the social elements of technological features uh, and that assume within themselves that there is sort of a politics and a power and a value relationship to the ways that technologies are produced deployed and used and so a couple that i highlight in the book um, Andre Box critical Technoculture discourse analysis is about sort of the stories that people tell about the technologies that they make and use. Um, agonistic design, which is about uh, sort of putting out designed designed objects and uh, in a way that highlights uh, problematic and um, is sort of an ongoing sort of contestation that brings us to enhance uh, enhance the best elements of design and face and scrutinize the troublesome ones. Um, walkthrough methods and app center analysis are, are, are others where it's really kind of a deep dive into particular social media or digitized applications um, to understand what the user experience is like of singular applications and of collections, uh, collections of them. But really sort of any sort of design ethnography, um, value sensitive design, the kinds of things that really draw attention to the social elements of technological features um, will pair really nicely with the mechanisms and conditions framework.
1: This seems um, to be uh, very robust and something that will will provide you with multiple uh, careers to just, you know, to study and and, and still have more information, uh, more data to collect, more information to make sense of. So uh, I wonder, ha- have you had invitations from businesses or local governments or um, wh- whether it's public, private uh, or um, ter- public, private or tertiary in terms of you know, coming in and, and either figuring out ways to uh, create a better design of a city or a better design of a product uh, or how to better offer services to, uh, to the people an organization serves?
0: Yeah, a bit, not a ton. So, so I've been doing, I've done a series of, um, responsible design workshops rooted in affordances with startups in Australia. Um, and so I've been working, so I've done, I think, three of those. So three kind of workshops with startups in Australia. Um, and I've worked with a nonprofit who, um, funds startups in Australia, uh, as well to sort of talk to them about it. Um, I may be working with some insurance companies in the next year, uh, but so far it's been small and slow. Though that is an area I would like to develop further.
1: Uh, risk and affordance. I see something. I see something being paired there, like with, uh, you know, a, a red car costing more than what a, a blue, or because of uh, the belief that well, and the statistics that show uh, red cars tend to be more vulnerable than than other vehicles. Partially due to, I think, human construction of what it means to be driving a red car. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Excellent. Well, um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show, but there's one one question that uh, you know I can't end the show without asking, and that is, what are you working on now?
0: Yeah, great question. Also, so I've got a couple of projects going right now. So I'm finishing up a project on ethics in Australia's technology startup sector. Um, and I'm also the deputy director of a big program here at the Australian National University called Humanizing Machine Intelligence. And it's a group of social scientists, computer scientists and lawyers. And we are looking at um, the social factors in AI and machine learning, trying to understand how to how to get that right. Um, that's a big one. And then similarly, I've been working on some stuff with colleagues uh, at the University of Michigan on um, algorithmic justice. So how do we um, undo some of the harms that have been wrought by AI and machine learning and how do we mobilize them towards goals of equality and social justice?
1: Well, it sounds to me like some projects that can turn up another book uh, here soon and we can uh, come back together on this show and and talk through it. And uh, thank you, Jenny, for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Michael. This was a lot of fun. Oh,
1: excellent. Oh, my name is Michael Johnston. This was another episode of New Books in Sociology A channel on New Books Network. Have a great day. <music>